Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. Welcome back to The Motivated Mind, a top 100 health podcast, thanks to each of you. This is episode 366, and I'm your host, Scott Lynch. Thanks so much for listening. If I brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe or follow button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook and let me know what you want to hear more of. And please be sure to share the podcast. Today we have another special guest that joins the pod, David Hauser, a serial entrepreneur, speaker, and angel investor known for his remarkable track record of success. He bootstrapped Grasshopper to over $30 million in ARR, eventually selling it to Citrix for $175 million. He also founded Chargeify, achieving profitability and gaining investment from Mark Cuban, ultimately acquired by Battery Ventures. Additionally, he founded Vanilla, raising $42 million from Venrock and Insight Partners. David's journey is a testament to his unyielding dedication and innovation in entrepreneurship. What truly sets him apart is his commitment to helping others achieve their entrepreneurial dreams. He co-founded National Entrepreneurs Day and has invested in over 50 startups, including leaders like Intercom, Unbounce, Grove, and the hustle. David is an inspiring figure in entrepreneurship, dedicated to guiding and motivating aspiring entrepreneurs to reach new heights. David and I dive into his inner challenges and how he conquered them, persistently utilizing them as a source of motivation the influence of peer groups as we achieve more success, and the challenge of comparing ourselves to others, the rationale behind driving a 14-year-old car and never opting for a first-class ticket despite being a millionaire, David's upbringing and the freedom granted by his parents, allowing him to make mistakes and its pivotal role in his success, his core values and how they steer his personal and professional life, and finally, how life's challenges constitute its most valuable aspect. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. 
Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. So you've accomplished, obviously, a significant milestones in your life with Grasshopper, Chargeify, Vanilla. Achievers, and I've interviewed quite a bit, often possess unique perspectives on life, right? Particularly regarding, let's call it limiting beliefs, distinguishing truth from falsehood. What were some internal barriers that you had to overcome to reach your level of success? And you can bring us from the start to where you are today or some of the most monumental ones. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think about this a lot, actually, because I think that successful people are actually very counter to a lot of things, right? Like if, if there's a general belief about X, I think people are very much the opposite of that if you look at highly successful people. There's something in them that says, I'm going to do this differently, not even a reason always, but like, I'm going to do something differently. And what, what I always think back to like, why do I want to be successful? Like, why did I want to be successful? And for me, it was always proving people wrong, right? Like I go back to my childhood and struggled tremendously with reading and writing, went to tutoring five days a week, had severe learning disabilities. And I carefully said had, because I figured out how to learn by the help of a lot of people around me to overcome that. But like my belief of like where people placed me was all the way down here. And I wanted to prove people I was all, all the way up here. And, and that for me has driven everything I do. I can think back to being not as popular as I wanted in high school. I'm like, well, that doesn't matter because I'm going to prove everyone wrong about that, right? I can think back to, you know, not kindergarten, but like, you know, kind of after that period, first, fourth, fifth grade, whatever. And people are like, he's not smart enough. He's not good enough. And those things have driven me in everything I do in life. So you've transformed what one could put a title on, darkness, shortcomings, whatever. And you said, well, hold on a second. What if this was actually fuel rather than a leak in the fuel tank? But what happens after David starts to have large successes? Then what, what continues to be the propellant for David, right? Because you and I are similar in that regard. I was the same way. The education system didn't do me a lot of favors, but at the end of the day, it was on my shoulders, right? It was my responsibility. And I've used that same mentality too as well. I was never in advanced classes, none of that, did not do great during school. And I use that as fuel. But there's a certain point, especially where you are in your life, that you've proven all of those things to be incorrect. So then what fills that void? So I think there's two things that happen. One, it becomes habit. There's always shortcomings that I look at and say, how do I overcome those, right? How do I prove people wrong? So that habit stays. No matter the level of success measured in whatever way, I think the habit stays, right? Two, I still don't think in my mind that I've reached a level of success to prove those people wrong. 
I, I'm not sure if there's ever a level that proves it wrong, but like that could be my limiting belief that prevents me from excelling in the future. And I'll have to struggle with that and figure that out over time. But for now, it's still fueling and is productive for me, right? That may change. Mm. It's funny. I, I listened to an interview. I don't remember who it was. Actually, it might have been Natasha interviewing someone. Natasha Graziano, I had her on the podcast. And uh, she was interviewing someone. I can't remember who it was. And she said, do you think you've made it? The other person said, nope. And it was a, an artist, that pretty big artist. Don't, don't remember who it was again. But, and I thought that was so fascinating. Someone who's had all this success, right? Which is success is subjective, right? Each of us measure it differently. I don't look at that as a bad thing though. That you think that I, I don't know if I'll, I'll ever make it to that level of proving other people wrong. Yeah. And I think there's also a struggle as you find more monetary success in life, the peer group changes and there's always someone more successful. And this is where I think it's actually quite counterproductive, right? Because we, we start making comparisons and we start looking at other people they're more successful than me. They have more money than me. They have whatever it is, right? And like, I don't care about material things. So it's a very weird dichotomy, right? Like I have the same car I had 14 years ago. So it's not material things, but it, it is a struggle to say, oh my God, like my peer group has now changed and there's people with 10 times more wealth than me. Are, are they smarter than me? Are they more successful than me? And you, you ask those questions. Those I think are counterproductive compared to what I find proving people wrong in my past is productive for me. And I try to separate those things. But I think as a human being, it's hard sometimes to, to separate that. Sure. And given that you're not, uh, I think Ramit Sethi this way, great financial coach. He has a great podcast. He'll teach you to be rich. Phenomenal book too as well. I think he still drives around in a 20-year-old Honda. And he's like, people give me shit all the time because I have sweaters that are more expensive. But that's my rich life, right? Have you ever, as your group has evolved, have you ever faced challenges with someone asking you, David, you've made all this money, had all this success. Dude, what the hell are you still doing driving around in this clunker that's backfiring? I'm probably exaggerating here, but you get my point. Yeah. People say this all the time. Like, I'm going to fly spirit next week. Uh, <laughs> Love it. Back from Orlando. I mean, I paid the extra 80 bucks for the big seat, but- uh, it, it's spirit, right? So people make those comments. But for me, I, I think a lot, a lot like for me is where do I invest that those dollars for things? And one of my core values is experiences over things, right? So like I'm going to Orlando, I'm going to spend time with my kids. I spent a lot of money to have a guide at Universal Studios, right? That cost 10 times more than the flight, but that's an experience, right? We can share that as a family. It also reduces my time commitment. So there's a lot of benefits I'm buying with those dollars that I find value compared to the seat I'm sitting in on a plane that has Wi-Fi. I don't really care what it is outside of that, right? So I think it's finding those things that are most important. And for me, it's how do they line up with my core values? Mm. I want to dive into some of your core values. I, I saw those on your website. So how did you distinguish some of these things. So here's what I mean. You have, I want to prove everybody wrong. And most of society, the way that it's been constructed is through visual intake, right? 
oh, someone's wearing something nice, so I assume they're successful. This Warren Buffett piece, right? I'd rather not look rich and actually be rich, right? I'm paraphrasing here, but was that challenging for you? Because I'm sure those material things didn't mean much to you, but was there a point where that clicked and changed, right? Where you needed the nice car or you thought you needed the nice car. You thought that was going to fill the void when in reality you go, oh, wow, I really don't give a shit if this is a six-figure car that I'm in. It's not really driving the things that matter to me. And when did that happen? Yeah, that, that's it's an interesting question because, I, I mean, I've had expensive, fancy cars. I think it's a good example, right? I think I matured and understood that, like, I was trying to fill a void externally that was internal. And it, it was never going to be filled. It didn't matter if I had one car or 10 cars, but it took me a few years to learn that. Like I had a fancy M3 or whatever it was, and it was a fun car, but the value I got out of it just diminished so quickly. And I had to learn that from experience. I'm sure my parents could have told me that or a friend. I doubt I would have listened. And maybe I had the benefit of doing that earlier in life compared to like a midlife crisis because I had some dollars to spend earlier in life. So I learned that and matured faster. And I had that privilege, right? I think that that for me was really helpful to get to the place I am today, which is, you know, 40 years old and feeling like I've matured past that. But then on the other side of it, like I've always been very conscious of the amount of money things cost and, you know, kind of spending. I just don't have a lot of things. I didn't have to like go from one extreme to the other. Like I didn't care about things that much to begin with. It was really the realization internal and external. Well, it's interesting, this correlation that you're bringing up, right? You say, you know, spending money on experiences, that's more important to you. This minimalist ideology of the more shit we have, the more shit controls our life. And you have something nice and what do you want to do? You want to protect it. You don't want it to scratch. You want to clean it all the time. Saying yes to those things means you're saying no to something else, whether it be being a father, I know you have three kids, or being a husband, or being a leader in your business. It takes away from those things. So it sounds like early on, after some iterations, you said, this is not worth what I'm saying yes to here and what I'm saying to no over here. Yeah, and I also had the benefit of my mom early on showing us travel and other experiences and valuing that much more growing up than other things and saying no to material things. She could have said yes to them, but she made a very conscious choice and, and showed us and explained to us that she was saying no to something to then have an experience. And that I think was a great example growing up. Hopefully I can give that to my kids. And I, I worry about that a lot. Like, you know, if you give too many experiences, they become spoiled too, right? So there's some balance. I, I remember reading an article recently, collectors of, of experiences, right? And that's just as bad as being a collector of cars or some other material thing. If you don't actually genuinely be in the moment, participate in the experience, if you're just doing experiences to collect them, that's the same as a material thing, right? Like you're chasing the next one. And so there's a balance, right? Mm. Have your kids ever brought said anything, done anything that you were like, oh shit, no, we, that's not the mindset we're going to have in, in this household. I remember 
one of our founders of one of our companies, he said, uh, they got this beautiful home. First day, the kids ran down all the wainscoting with silverware and scratch a crap out of everything. And, you know, five years previous him, he would have lost it. And he's like, listen, they're kids, they're having fun, but they live in this beautiful house. And these kids were really young. They were probably like six. And they said something that like clicked with him that, oh no, those are not the lessons I'm trying to instill. It was someone, something insinuating, like how come those people don't have money or can't do this? And it crushed his soul that like, how have I missed that? Have there been any moments for you where you were like, oh, wow, you know, we need to sit down and talk through this. Yeah, these happen all the time. But I think the the beauty of them is they're teaching moments. The other day, dropping my kids off at school, you know, one of them said, can we get a Bentley? Absolutely <laughs> not. Like, first of all, it's a waste of money. We don't need one. Like, like, that's a teaching moment. It's a small thing, right? And that wasn't because of how we act. That was their peer group, other people around them, which have tremendous influence. But all of those to me are gifts because it creates a teaching moment, right? The thing I struggle with more than anything at the current age of our kids is travel. I've gotten to a point where like international travel to Europe, Asia, whatever, I'm not sitting in a regular seat. I'm laying down in a bed, right? I'm also not paying for that. I'm only using points. I've never paid for a first class ticket in my life, but the kids are not old enough to put them in coach. Right. So how do you balance that and have conversations with them? So we're very direct with them. Like, look, this is a privilege that I've worked very hard for for a long time. Don't expect this. You're only sitting here because you're not old enough to sit back there. But as soon as you are, you will be. And you will be sitting back there for your entire life until you work to the point that you can afford that. Right. So it's a difficult balance. But I do love the teaching moments. Yeah. Our daughter is only eight months old, our first kid. We had her in February. And I've always been thinking about those things, you know, the lessons. And there's they're very minimal right now because she's a sponge and just absorbing things. But it's remarkable to see a human being experience something for the first time, something that we take for granted, right? A door opening or something dropping or silverware tinging right on, on a plate. They're just so fascinated with it. I want to go back. A little bit. You said your mom seemed like seems like a really good person. What other lessons has she taught you that you're like, I am just so lucky that I had her as someone I could look up to, a, a hero? Give us some of those. Yeah. <laughs> some of them I had to be more mature to understand uh, compared to being a kid. But the, the, the ones that stand out to me, one her and my father placed a tremendous amount of trust in me and my sister. And it was much less about rules as it was about expectations. And the fear was, you know, not delivering on expectations compared to punishment. And that gave us a lot of freedom to make mistakes. And we obviously did, but I think ended up in the right place. And as a parent now, it's really hard to do. It sounds like, oh, okay, sure. It's really difficult to do. So I appreciate that. I think the other one that really stands out is learning and education. For someone who struggled in school, she still placed a tremendous amount of value on learning. Not education in school necessary, but learning, right? And gave me opportunities to go to a very unique school 
in New York, very progressive, very, very different, gave me an opportunity, you know, to go to a very different school for high school and like supported those choices. And then when I had like a decision point before college, I was not going to go to college, right? She's, I was involved in internet companies. I'm like, I'm going to be a millionaire. This is great. I'm not going to go to college. And rather than her saying, you will go to college, she said, like, think about your experiences growing up and what learning meant for you. And do you want to give up on four years of learning, not four years of education? It's an interesting framework, a mindset shift there. It's interesting how impactful our childhood is to our future life, right? And you start to really realize that when you become a parent. Because most of our parents, we realize, I think there's a point where you go, oh shit, they didn't know what they were doing at all. They were just kind of figuring it out as they go, right? This is a learning moment for them, but it's also just as much of a learning moment for me. I'm the student and I'm also the teacher. It sounds like the freedom that your parents gave you to make mistakes and fail was a wonderful igniter into your ability to take risk because our formal education system is very much structured in a way where it diminishes the value of taking risk, right? But you were taught, it sounds like from a young age, to go out there and try it, figure it out. And you've had a lot of businesses and you've invested in a lot of companies. And so I could see this DNA strand that runs through to older you and younger 15-year-old David. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a, a promotion of calculated risk within the household, right? So my dad was an entrepreneur, so like had that kind of mindset and understanding, but very much about calculated risk. I think what's difficult though, as a parent now, I think it's very dependent on the on the child. I think there's some things that can be taught and some things that can't. And I think representing our core values is our strongest ability to teach those things, right? And create the frameworks and structures that we want, but it has to still fit within the child. And I think about this when picking a school, there could be school A that's the best school in the world, but it's the wrong school for that child. And I think that's the same with risk, with you know how much leadway you give a child. Our job as parents is to try to figure out that as best as possible. And we're going to make mistakes and we have to just course correct as quickly as possible. I want to go into some of those core values. I love them. You have, you have six of them, but there's, there's really, I think, four I want to focus on. One of them is uh, catch people doing good things. Might seem obvious to many of us listening, easier said than done like many things in life. But what does that mean to you? For me, this is really a mindset shift from away from punishment, away from negativity towards, you know, recognizing and seeing the positives, right? And this is very difficult with kids. Like, don't get me wrong. I get upset with my kids. I lose my patience. Like all those things happen. But like thinking back to my core value allows me to say, you know what? Instead of saying no, no, no to this, I'm going to say yes, yes, yes to the good behavior, right? And finding those things. And in a negative situation, there's always a good piece of it, right? There's always something there that you can point to and say, Scott, I loved that, right? And I think that thinking back to my experiences, those are the things that allowed me to propel forward, 
compared to being told, don't do something. No, that's not right. That's wrong. Right. So that, that's really where that came from for me. And it's like, to your point, it sounds very simple, but it's very powerful because of how simple it is. And it's so easy in today's world to get caught up in negativity. I mean, we hear it all the time, right? The media are on online and you were talking about this earlier, comparing ourselves to other people. And so you naturally have this bias towards negativity, right? It's, it's much easier to point fingers outside, play the victim, say, why am I not here? Why is this person here? Why did I have a bad day? How did I drop that? How was I a bad parent today? So on and so forth. And so I think conditioning yourself in perpetuity to see the good things is such a remarkable growth strategy and, and a lifting weightless opportunity too at the same time. And what I found really interesting is this one for me was always much easier within my company than within my house. Doing this within my company, I just found so much easier and natural where in my house, I really had to change my mind and think differently. Like in the company, I'm like, oh yeah, no problem. I can catch people doing good things. We can reward, we can recognize. We can, like, I'm like, okay, I'm all, that's easy, right? At home, it was a real challenge, which is the beauty of it, right? Like that's the, that's why it exists. Why was it such a difference, do you think, from inside the business versus in your home? Obviously, there's a complete different intimacy, if you will, between business and your house. But w what do you think was that big difference maker? For me, I think it's in the company, you can see results delivered much faster. And I like seeing small results quickly. So in the company, I'm like, oh, okay, look, I give this feedback. I get good feedback back. I get For children, it's much slower. It's more powerful, but it's slower. So it's, it's more frustrating and it, you kind of have to just buy into it and do it again and again and again without the result yet. Yeah, right. That's a, that's a solid answer. <laughs> that's a solid answer. All right. This other core value that you have, you touched on this a little bit earlier and I want you to elaborate. You said how you do one thing is how you do everything. This is, maybe I should have put this first on my list because I think it's probably one of the most important ones and kind of leads to the rest. Some people really hate this because they're like, that's not true. But I, I have not met a successful person that I like, right? So I'll be very specific that I like. There are successful people that take shortcuts and do things in life that I, I don't like, I don't want to be around. But so if a successful person that I like and want to be around, I've not met someone that does other parts of their life outside of business, not all out, right? Like, if they're all out in business, they're all out in their relationship, in their kids, in their exercise, in their eating, whatever, all of the pieces, right? And I think that's because the attitude of going all in on something and putting every bit of effort you possibly can into it becomes a habit, right? Now, if I only do it in some places, I quickly drop that. And I think that becomes a downward spiral, right? Now, I've been told many times that this is one of the worst things about me <laughs> by, by other people sometimes, but it's driven my success and I want my kids to work this way too, right? So like if I think about exercise, I, I went to one yoga class and like, okay, I like this. I then went seven days a week and did a two hour teacher training within the first three months because 
if I'm going to do something, I want to understand it deeply. I want to learn about it again, back to learning, but it's all, I'm all in on it. Right. Someone said, you can't run a marathon. I'm like, you're right. I ran the Boston marathon four months later. I did not do it fast. <laughs> I raised money for a charity to, to get my spot, but I did the training. I completed it because I wanted to do all that. I'm like, I'm going to start running a little bit. No, no, no. That's it. So this is a difficult one to teach children without showing. And that's where I struggle with this. I love this one a lot because this one really, I mean, all of them really resonate, but this one, especially the way that I've thought about it is you're making a promise to yourself when you say you're going to do something. And that promise isn't just to today's self, it's to tomorrow's self. And so if current self is saying, you know what, I'm going to work out three times a week. I'm going to wake up at 5.30 and I'll work out for an hour and a half. And you don't do it. What sort of barriers or pain are you causing future you and that life that you want? And so I've thought about it and framed it that way to me. Waking up at 5.30 every day, working out Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, doing light therapy in the morning, all of these different things in my life that this is an opportunity to show myself that I have the capability, the consistency, the delivery, the effort to go on this journey to future Scott and who I want to become, enhance. And so I think it's a signature mark, David at the corner, when he says, people say, no, nah, you're not going to run the marathon. You're like, oh yeah, no, uh, I, I will. And I might not be super fast, but I'm going to do the goddamn thing. So there's this part of like, you're giving you're proving other people wrong, but you're also saying, if I'm going to do something, why that classic saying, why am I not going to go 100% out? Then what's the point of even doing it? And is there segue here into life begins at the edge, right? That's one of your other core values, right? Is there, there a connective tissue here to these two? Yeah. So I, I think t to your point though, I think there's also habits created. And I think this is what's really important here, which is because it's not just, you know, just like you could say, work hard, right? Like this, one of my other core values, right? You could say that alone. Okay, work hard. That kind of covers a lot of it. But the key is like, it's the small things because they add up. The way I pick up my room and keep my space tidy translates into habit about how I keep my mind tidy, how I keep my computer tidy. All of those little pieces add up bit by bit by bit, right? Like, do I keep my car clean or not? small detail, but that's how do I care for things that I have around me, which I think even translate into how do I care about people around me? All of those add up. So I think that's the key is it's those small habits. Life begins at the edge to me is all about challenging and pushing. And to some extent, it does connect with, you know, going all out, right? And, and being all in on something. But really making yourself uncomfortable. Like where we grow is in, is in comfort. If we're comfortable, we're not changing. That, that's just it. We're, we're sitting there, right? We can be comfortable sitting on our couch. Nothing's happening. And I think that there's, there's no core value here that says learning, but this to me is learning. When you push to the edge, you're continuously learning. Like, how do you put this into place? Because people are like, okay, what does that mean, right? Like, I, I think of it like some of the goals I put in place. Okay, I want to learn a new skill or thing every year. That's uncomfortable. I'm terrible at golf. 
I don't really want to go there and look like an idiot in a golf lesson at 40 years old, but it's uncomfortable and I'm growing. So I love it. Right. I'm standing there. I'm like, this is amazing. Went on a trip to Cuba and did a salsa lesson. I'm terrible at dancing. Hate dancing. Zero chance that I would pick that as a thing, but that uncomfort pushes. Right. It's interesting. It's like a metal detector right on the beach. You see older individuals are kind of going down the Florida coast looking beep, 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 beep. I think uncomfortability is the beep, 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 that there's something to be found there. So it's normally interpreted as, oh shit, the natural fight or flight, right? And most of us peace right out and we run really far. But what if the understanding and the mindset, the perspective shift there was that the feeling of uncomfort of your chest feeling like it's going to collapse and your lungs barely able to breathe and maybe anxiety increasing and stress and all these other things. Like what if those were the metal detector showing us that that's what we should walk closer towards as opposed to further away, right? For me, there's so much power in that. I, I think to the first time I went scuba diving, I did the training I did the certification, of course, because like everything else, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this. Sitting there on the first dive, I'm like, holy, like, um, what did I do? Like hearts pounding, whatever, get done with it. And you're like, oh my God, that was amazing. Not, not that I saw fish. Like, I don't think that's actually what matters, right? It's, I was able to accomplish that and do that. And it was something that in my mind was difficult. And if I know I can overcome that, other things look a lot easier, right? So as part of a yoga practice, I think this is very similar, right? Like in a deep yoga practice, it's not about sitting there. It's about sitting with uncomfort, right? It's about pushing to the edge and being uncomfortable and knowing like, I'm going to be in boat pose, which is not fun. But if I can do this, other things are not as hard. Yeah. And you're giving yourself the micro confidence in those moments. So that we talked about self-belief at the beginning, right? The belief that this is scary because it's unknown and I haven't faced it and I don't have the proper data set to analyze if it's safe or not, or if I'm capable of it, or if it's as fearful, right? Like I think it was Seneca that said, you know, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. Most of us live upstairs in, in the attic and haven't walked out the front door and said, oh, well, this isn't so bad, is it? Yeah, no, it's not so bad. So all these small moments, if you want to call them that, are signals to your brain to say, well, wow, that wasn't so bad. Well, hold on. If that's the case, then what about this other thing over here that I thought was like really scary or intimidating or I was incapable of doing? What if I poke this a little bit? You know, what, what would happen? Yeah, look, true suffering is thinking about the past and worrying about what has happened or worrying about what may happen in the future, right? Compared to being in the moment now, dealing with the uncomfort, it's just not that bad. But we worry like, well, if I'm in boat poach for 10 minutes, what will it feel like? Well, it doesn't matter because you're not. You're in it right now, right? You're in the thing that you're doing. That I think is what, what's powerful. It's interesting. You said after you got done the scuba diving, you know, at first it was a, whoa, what the hell did I get myself into? And then after like, oh, that wasn't bad. It's just like that classic saying they say about workout. You know, yeah, some people may be like, oh man, I got to run or I got to lift weights or I got to do this exercise or whatever. But then after you're done, you go, wow, I'm really fucking glad I did that. I feel 
great. I think about each of those the same way, right? Like actually right now I'm part of a cohort with a bunch of creators and an ultra speaking course, the best speaking course I've ever been in my life. And they push you, they push you to the edge. And at first you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You get there and you're like, all right, this isn't so bad. This isn't so bad. And you get done even before you might have some resistance. You get done. You're like, damn, I feel good. Like the chest is open. Like I'm walking tall. This just, it's so freeing. And when you can consistently do that, it's like, again, anything is possible, right? That's the the continual framework. And and if you, you loop back for a second, it all goes back to how you do one thing is how you do everything, right? Because each of these things are building that habit, right? Each of these times that you make that effort and you're uncomfortable takes you back and you can do it again and again and again, right? Like I'm not an extrovert, but I can get on stage and speak to 10,000 people, not because I did something special, but because I did it. I just went and did it. It was scary. I didn't want to do it. Now I'm like, oh, that's that's easy, right? Like, <laughs> I don't worry about that, but I put the same effort in. Is it somewhat, and this is getting a little granular, but somewhat hard for you to continue after you've, let's say you've you've stretched this muscle, right? It's got It's got some meat to it. Is it harder for you to go out and continue to push yourself for new experiences? Or is it so easy because it goes back to your core value about, you know, the the good things, looking for the good things in life, opportunity like, oh, I'm on vacation with my family, haven't done scuba diving, scares the shit out of me, don't want to be eaten by a shark. What if I get caught on this? Da 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 da. Right. Are you like constantly looking at, okay, I'm trying to find that thing I haven't done that makes me get a little sweaty, tingly in the hands, and I'm going to go after that, and I'm going to master that. Has it become a little more difficult? You're like, no, it's so natural now that I I just kind of, I'm pulled into it rather than opposite magnets pushing me away. I guess the difficulty now is I look forward to the the uncomfortable, right? So it's, it's not hard to find them, but it's a different feeling than it was before. You're, I'm like, oh, how do I find this? I think the beauty of having kids and kids my age now, kind of six, 10, and a little bit older, is I can experience those things with them now. I have no problem getting on a roller coaster, but now I can re-experience that with my 11-year-old. And she, you know, when she was five or six, had, she was like, there's no way that I'm doing this. No way. And we worked on it. We worked on it together. And now she's like, you know, I'm going on everything, Right. So seeing that in a child brings back the beauty and the uncomfortable, you know, feelings and then the results. Even though I didn't experience the roller coaster thing again, I got to re-experience it. Right. You know, it's interesting. I, I've I've interviewed a, a lot of authors and I've always asked, like, actually I brought on Kristen Butler, Power of Positivity, probably the biggest positivity Facebook page in the world. And she, you know, has written a couple of books. And I asked her, I said, do you think the exercise of you writing this book allowed you, it was an exercise for your mind to stick to positivity? Like, right, when I talk on this podcast and I'm doing the podcast, I'm flexing my muscles of, you know, mindset, of elevating, of perspective, all this stuff, right? For you too, now that you're saying, well, it's not, these things aren't scary and I look forward to them, your practice every day now is this vessel of your child. I know that sounds like weird to be like, oh, wow, I get to relive this through them. I get to coach them through it. So it is flexing the muscle that 
maybe it's not as hard. You need to do many, many, many reps in order to get that. But now you're like, oh, great. I get to see my daughter or my son go through this and I get to coach them through, which brings me back to the basics, right? I think it was Kobe that said, you know, no matter how great you are, never forget the basics, right? And so it brings you back to basicville. Yeah, I, I think the other thing too is I use exercise in a similar way in that every day you can experience uncomfort in that, right? Lifting a little bit heavier, you know, staying in the pose in yoga longer, like all of those little uncomforts you can look forward to every day, but are experienced new every day, right? It's never the same. It doesn't matter if it's the same weight or not. It's always different. We wake up as different humans every day. And that uncomfort is the gift that we get for putting the work in. Right. It's funny. I, I heard a, a parent say something. And again, I'm a first time in a new newer parent, my wife and I, and said, oh, it's easy. And I thought to myself, I didn't say anything in that moment. Took a couple of days to think about it. And I'm like, you know, there's an interesting correlation because some people will say, oh, why can't life be easy? And I've really thought about these two phrases a lot. You said this earlier about sitting on the couch. If you want different things, you've got to do different things. Why the fuck would you actually want life to be easy? Because the big rewards do not come after easy. Name one, this is a rhetorical question, obviously, name one successful person that's achieved anything in life and tell me that it was easy. Yes, you said this earlier. Some people take shortcuts, sure. But the majority of the data does not show easy equals high return. That's just not reality. And so I always think, man, if you're a parent, you're saying it's easy, you're not doing parenting right. Like bottom line, and that might be a sticky point, but like, that's the truth. It's hard. And that doesn't mean you're a bad parent or you're doing, you're not efficient, whatever you want, however you want to judge that. Right. And I think it's the same way in life. Life is not supposed to be easy. And if we can admit that and grapple with that and not resist that, I think it opens us up to more opportunities and seeking out those difficulties. I, I go one level deeper on that, that even if there was an easy way, I don't think it's a fun or interesting way, right? So if someone presented the opportunity and said, look, I'm going to wave a magic wand and here's the easy way out, that doesn't sound fun or interesting or engaging. That sounds boring. Yeah, I could watch Netflix too and do nothing. Why not be engaged and in something that that is hard, right? And is difficult and is challenging. Like that's where the interest is and the passion and all of those things come from is the difficulty. I love that. I love that depth that you just brought that to. David, this has been awesome, my friend. Where can people follow you? If, if someone wants to follow David's journey, which has already been crazy after 40 years, I, I think you said you were 40. Where can people follow you? DavidHauser.com. I have a weekly email list that I send out some of my thoughts, uh, roughly three, three of these thoughts a week um, on a variety of topics, productivity, health, business, entrepreneurship, kind of across the board, whatever I'm thinking, reading, learning. And also I'm, I'm quite counter uh, to a lot of people. Like I have a Twitter account and a Facebook account and whatever, but, and my Twitter account is at DH. So I was relatively early, but I also don't post there to be honest with you. Like I found it very non-engaging and I don't like the shortness of it, right? Like my email is not necessarily long, but I like that I can contemplate and think. And someone asked me, I, I don't know, 
a year ago, like, why do you write this email list every week, every single week, vacation, not on vacation. I, I've not skipped a single week in, I think, five and a half, six years. And they're like, do you do it for the people? I'm like, no, I do it for me. It's very selfish. Like, I write so I can think better, one, and two, I can become a better sharer. If there's one thing I've gotten from writing this every week is in my life with my you know, business partner, in my house, I've become a better sharer that can talk about feelings, can talk about thoughts because I write. I find that a lot with my podcast. I've been doing it since 2018. I don't do interviews as often. I probably release two a month. I write anywhere from eight to 12 pages twice a week and record twice a week and haven't skipped a beat since 2018. Again, going back to small habits and you know compounding and all that stuff that's so important, but it's it's very healing. It's very rewarding. And that selfish piece, sometimes selfishness is so, the byproduct is selflessness too sometimes, which is interesting. But there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like no. you can be selfish, right? Like that's fine. Correct. We wanna be a better person. If that's the output to do it, all good. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into a millionaire's mindset with David Hauser. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Motivated Scott. Don't forget to join me every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. I love you all and thanks so much for listening. Motivated Mind is a legacy division.